Uh, Let's pray as we come to hear from God's word. Uh, Father, we've heard uh, your word read to us, your word that is truth, your word that brings life. So we pray, Father, as we come uh, to hear your word explained now, please help me to speak it clearly, truthfully, faithfully as I ought. And please grant, Father, that we would hear your word as it is, that we would accept it, trust it, believe it and obey it. Father, may these words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Uh, Religion is on the way out. Uh, That was the summary after our last census in 2016, which showed that the fastest growing statistic in Australia was that of no religion. 30% of Australians in 2016 selected the no religion category compared to 0.8% in 1966. Religion is on the decline and to be honest, most Australians don't seem to mind. But more than that, uh, religion has become, I think, somewhat of a dirty word. This has been especially clear at the moment as the Religious Freedom Bill is being discussed in Parliament especially around the, uh, the right of religious schools to expel or even fire staff based on their sexual practice that conflicts with school values or beliefs. Religion is no longer seen as the harmless attempt to please God, but the cause of war, discrimination, oppression, and especially has tolerated or promoted the abuse of children. Religion is for those that preach love and acceptance but can't live it. It's for hypocrites. And I think this is something that Christians have often felt. It's a pressure. And so we've come up with these catchy slogans like Christianity uh, isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Attempts to kind of separate ourselves from this idea of religious hypocrisy. And to be fair, often I've been described by my friends as the religious one of the group and I don't think they mean it as a compliment. And yet in our passage tonight, James is going to call us not to abandon the idea of religion, but to make sure our religion is real. What he calls in verse 27, religion that is pure and faultless, accepted by God our Father. And of course we shouldn't abandon religion because religion for James is the reverence and worship of God. He speaks about religion as a good thing. But as he shows us what pure religion should be, he's also clear that there are those who are self-deceived and their religion is worthless. Religion that does not please God and religion that will certainly not be met with blessing and the crown of life that James spoke of back in chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, And given that you're here at church tonight, being all religious, uh, I'm guessing this is a good message that we need to hear and understand. Because it would be tragic, wouldn't it, to arrive and stand before Jesus to be met with those words, your religion is worthless. Uh, You'll remember that we've been seeing in James chapter 1 that he's writing to Christians who are facing uh, pressure and persecution for their faith. In chapter 1, he's been telling them to respond to these trials with pure joy 
because they know that God is working to perfect their faith, to change them to be more like Jesus. We heard last week in verses 13 to 18 that as they face temptation, rather than blame God, they should turn to God, God who is the consistent, the generous giver. And in verse 18 of chapter 1, James highlighted the key evidence that this is who God is. Verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of all he created. As people who have heard the word of truth, that is the gospel, the good news about Jesus' life, death and resurrection. That as those who have heard and responded by trusting in Jesus' saving work, we have new birth, a new identity and a new purpose as God's people. James is writing to people already well acquainted with this gospel. And he now writes to show them what this real Christianity, what pure religion with Christ-like character should look like. And in verse 19 to 21, he says that pure religion should be committed to righteousness. We see that, verse 20. Uh, Verse 20, he says, Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So, verse 19, he writes, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now, this sounds like a pretty nice slogan that you probably get from uh, life insurance or maybe you'd hear on Words to Live by on Light FM. But the listening that James has in mind here, I think it's primarily actually listening to God, to God's word, that word of truth in verse 18, the word we must humbly uh, accept in verse 21. But as James, we're going to see in his letter, relies heavily on Proverbs, he may also be including the idea of listening to each other. Proverbs 12. The way of the fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. In fact, all the ideas in verse 19 are in Proverbs. Proverbs 14.29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Be quick to listen slow to speak, slow to become angry. Uh, As James's readers are facing trials, we see that they're turning on each other. They're cursing each other in James 3 verse 10. In James 4, they're fighting and quarreling with each other. And so he calls them to patience and wisdom. Proverbs 15, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. And so a righteous life that's pleasing to God always not just includes how we treat and relate to God himself, but how we treat each other. And so James hones in on an area that his readers are struggling with because, verse 20, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, I think that's not to say that all anger uh, is ungodly. Jesus himself gets angry in John 2. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we must deal with our anger rightly rather than just not get angry. There is a right and just anger for Christians, but if we're honest, more often than not, our anger is actually usually about our own comfort or preference. And it is true that anger does cause us to be selfish, vindictive, aggressive, bitter, And so often in our anger, we create or exasperate conflict. 
And we love to justify, oh, I'm not an angry person, but she's very annoying. How, what else am I supposed to do to make my point if not get angry? And so James says, take note of this. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And he says to us, change, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Notice that James expands it here to all moral filth, the abundance, the prevalence of evil in our lives. And as we listen to wise counsel, and especially as we listen to God's word, God exposes and challenges our sinful behavior in every aspect of our lives, not just speech and not just anger. And so he says, be ruthless with your sin. Get rid of it, not just some of it, all of it. And it comes back to this major idea of the book of James. There is no picking and choosing. God's people must be undivided in loyalty and obedience. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here tonight, how are you going at ridding yourself of all moral filth? Is a life that's pleasing to God a righteous life? Something you long to have? More than that, is it someone you long to be? But how do we get this life? How do we see change happen? Uh, I imagine for many of us we know the experience and struggle it can be to change. Patterns of sin that are deep-seated to the point where sometimes we lose any hope of changing. But change can and does happen for God's people who have new birth. Verse 21, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Pure religion that pleases God listens to God's word. The Christian life, new birth, begins by hearing the gospel, the word of truth, verse 18. And when that happens, the word is planted in us. It's a metaphor that Jesus uses in the parable of the sower in Mark 4. But just as the Christian life begins by accepting God's word, that planted seed must grow by continuing to listen to God's word and humbly accepting it. So whether we fully understand it or not, whether we can rationalize what God says in his word, whether it's even countercultural and the application is really clear but hard and costly, we must humbly accept God's word. And yet despite that, so often I'll hear Christians say, I could never believe what the Bible says about hell or predestination or about gender and marriage. No, no, this is God's word. So we must humbly accept it. But to be people who humbly accept God's word, we must regularly listen to God's word, which raises uh, an important question, but one I fear that's become so typical, it's almost lost all meaning. How is your Bible reading? Sometimes I get the impression that a a lack of Bible reading has become our new socially acceptable sin. The question gets asked at growth group or in conversation, and we just share about how busy we are, how tired we are, how hard it is to find the time, but deep down we'd really love to. And God understands. And we all nod in great sympathy. How can we read the Bible when between work, the gym, Netflix and dinner, there's just no time in the day? 
Or sometimes we just justify a lack of time in God's word by the fact that we go to church or growth group. Surely that's enough. And yet while being taught God's word like at church or at growth group, these are vital ways we listen to God's word. They are no substitute for the daily routine of abiding in Christ and in his word. So ask yourself, is listening to God speak a priority in your week that's reflected then in how you plan and then in what you do? Some of us have the classic Oscars mentality speech with God's word. We sit down to read it and we say, God, you got 60 seconds to impress me or the music's playing and I'm moving on. And we should expect no change in our lives when we neglect God's word. But the opposite is also true. By turning to God's word and humbly accepting it as true, authoritative, the life-giving word of the God who loves us, we can expect real change as God works in us by his spirit. In Isaiah 66, God declares, verse 2, These are the ones I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. And so, as John Piper says, we must swim in the Bible every day. It is an ocean of bright, glorious, weighty, all-satisfying truth about the one for whom you were made. And James is so eager for us to get this. Still verse 21, he calls us to humbly accept the word that's planted in us because that is a word which can save you. Uh, As believers uh, that James are writing to, they're facing trials and they turn on each other, they slander, they're angry. But in chapter 5, we see that many are abandoning the faith altogether. Verse 20, chapter 5. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Salvation in James is both present and future. We've been given new birth, yes, but we must continue in our faith until the end so that we might receive that crown of life. And so James is saying to us that all Christian growth, all change and perseverance is driven by listening to and accepting God's word. And so is that your attitude and practice when it comes to the Bible as if your life depends on it? But as we commit ourselves to listen to God, James gives us a warning. Verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, that verse should shock us because James is saying that there is a self-deception that a Bible-reading, Bible-believing Christian can fall into, listening without obeying. And this is a real danger for us because we're in a church that's committed to teaching the Bible. Sometimes we can be convinced that intellectual capacity and good theology are sufficient for our godliness. We hear sermon after sermon, we we listen to podcasts, even read good books on theology. But are you actually doing what God says? If you're in a building and someone runs past and says, there's a fire, You would be foolish if all you did was sit around thinking about the implications of that. And so James illustrates the point in verse 23. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. The one who listens but doesn't obey is like someone who looks in the mirror. They see the huge sore stain down their shirt, bent collar, KFC oil all over their face, something in their teeth. But they just walk away and forget. But it's more than they just forget, they actually don't do anything about it. Now the word translated face, it literally means the face of origin or existence. It's what the ESV calls his natural face. And James's point is pretty clear. As a mirror shows you the reality of what you look like, who you are, it's foolish, perhaps even disastrous, not to respond or change. And that's what God's Word does. The Bible shows you, you. As God speaks to us, He shows us who we really are. He exposes our sin and a need for a Saviour. But then it goes further into the positive and shows us our new identity as God's children and how we are to speak and live as those loved and saved by Jesus. So ask yourself, what do you usually do when you hear God's word call you to action? Whether it's changing or stopping a sinful behavior or doing something new. Whether it's uh, sexual immorality, forgiving your Christian brother or sister, giving generously to the gospel or serving others. How do you usually respond to God's word? It's amazing the time and effort we can put in to finding reasons to reject what God's saying. Oh, it doesn't mean that. That doesn't apply to my circumstances. I couldn't possibly do that. So either we justify ourselves in not changing or just willingly let ourselves forget that God ever called us to do it. And so James uh, has a clear warning. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. But notice that James doesn't see this call to obedience as a burden. Listening and doing is a pathway to blessing. Verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Uh, James calls God's word here the perfect law that gives freedom. And it's important to see that he hasn't changed idea or subject. Uh, law in the New Testament almost always refers to the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. But it's pretty clear from the flow of the passage that this perfect law, it's the same as the word of truth in verse 18, the word he's been talking about in verse 21 and verse 22. So why call it law? It should surprise us that actually James has no issue calling God's word a law. For the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the saving message of Jesus through both Old and New Testament is so much more than just information to understand or even to believe. It calls us to respond and change. The gospel includes ethical expectations on saved people. And James says it's a perfect law for two reasons, I think. 
James relies heavily in, uh, the, in his letter on the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 to 7, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In Luke 24, Jesus says that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. And so God's word, whether law or prophets, Leviticus or Isaiah, has been fulfilled, perfected in Christ. And so as Christians, we read and study all of God's word through the lens of its fulfillment in Christ. And so as we live for him, we must be committed to listening to and obeying all of Scripture because, as Tozer says, nothing less than the whole Bible can make a whole Christian. Which leads, I think, to the second reason. It's a perfect law because it comes from God who is perfect. When God speaks, he's calling us to a good, a perfect life. We heard it, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, all of them are righteous. So as we hear God's word, his perfect law, not only do we embrace it as a word to be believed, we live it out, we obey it so that we might embrace the best life possible. As we increasingly change to become perfect, those Christ-like people that God wants us to be and is at work to make us, back in chapter 1, verse 4. God works in trials to perfect our character and this happens as we commit ourselves to obey God's perfect word no matter what circumstances we are in. And do you see how much James wants us to get this? God's word is the perfect law that brings freedom. Freedom by pointing you to the crucified saviour who sets you free from the power and penalty your sin deserves. Freedom by bringing you into a relationship with God who made you, who loves you and knows what's best for you. But also freedom to be now able to live God's way. Now this is so counterintuitive, I think, for us. Freedom is found in obedience. But think about it. A fish doesn't flourish in its obedience as it leaps out of the bowl onto the carpet to escape its watery prison. No, a fish flourishes in the context it was made to flourish. And the same is true for us. That's what James says. Look again, verse 25. We flourish because we look intently into the perfect law that brings freedom. We continue in it. They will be blessed in what they do. Do you believe that? Are you convinced of that? Because when I'm honest with myself, I think most of my disobedience actually is the result of the opposite thought. If I was convinced that evangelism was going to be good for me, a blessing to enjoy, even if it meant I might have an awkward conversation or even cost me a friendship, I wouldn't actually make so many excuses not to do it. 
Are you convinced, as we read in Psalm 19, that the Lord, uh, the law of the Lord refreshes your soul and gives joy to your heart? Are you convinced that as you commit yourself to God's way, whether it's to sexual purity or giving financially to the gospel, whether it's using your time to teach Sunday school or even taking annual leave to do GSF, to read your Bible by yourself or with others or to share the gospel with your colleagues, that is the blessed life. Are you convinced of that? Think about the last time you were challenged by God's word, whether it was a church or growth group or just reading it by yourself. What did you do? So often we hear a call to change. It begins by feeling guilty because we know we need to. Sometimes we defend ourselves or contemplate all the things that would go wrong or we might lose if we really did what God said. And then time goes by and we exercise what we're best at, forgetting. And so James appeals to us tonight, listen, but don't merely listen and forget. Give yourself to God's word and change. Pure religion is committed to obedience because it's not miserable like those who willingly do what their oppressive ruler says. It's the joyful pursuit of the life we were made to enjoy. Continue in the perfect, law, uh, the perfect word law that brings freedom because that is pure religion, the blessed life. Then in verses 26 to 27, James applies this reality for his readers by showing them what it looks like in, in practice. Those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, on the surface, this might seem quite strange. Like, in what sense is pure and faultless religion encapsulated by speech, care for the poor and needy, and avoiding worldliness? Hasn't James skipped over a whole lot of them? What about church, giving, evangelism, youth ministry? Why, as James calls them to pure and faultless religion, does he summarize it into these three things? Well, firstly, they are all commandments from God's word. Uh, James, uh, again, addresses the issue of speech, just like he did in verse 19, and speech is a common theme for God's word. Proverbs is full of speech ethics, how God's people should be using their words. Just a taste, Proverbs 10. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 15.28, the heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Or a particularly important one for the sarcastic amongst us, like me, Proverbs 26, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is the one who deceives their neighbour and says, I was only joking. There's nothing ambiguous in God's word about the role of speech. Jesus himself said, Matthew 12, the mouth, of, uh, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Paul says, Ephesians 4.29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The same is true for caring for the orphan and the widow. 
Isaiah 1 verse 17, God says, Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Or Leviticus 19, Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. True worship of God looks out for the poor and needy because it reflects the character of the God we know. Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And this teaching continues into the New Testament, and you can see that in 1 Timothy 5. Thirdly, worldliness is a key issue in the Gospels. Jesus warned in Matthew 16, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And John's Gospel especially makes clear the relationship between a believer and the world. John 15, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Worldliness is about who you're loyal to. And James writes that we must not be polluted by the world, that is, to not be swayed, to think, act and live in accordance with its values and that of wider society. That's why in, in chapter 4, when James addresses worldliness, he calls it adultery. Speech, care for the poor and the needy, uh, and avoiding worldliness are all commands from God's word that the believer is to obey. And pure religion is about listening to and obeying God's word. And so James applies this reality to his reader's specific situation. Everything James says in verse 26 and 27 actually kind of becomes the major theme of the rest of the letter. The needy in society will be the focus in the next chapter, chapter 2. Speech in chapter 3, and then worldliness in chapters 4 and 5. And he highlights these specific issues because this is where they are listening to God but not obeying him. James is leaving no doubt in their minds that if they are going to change to have pure religion, this is where it will be. And it's really helpful, right, because it's true that sometimes we hear this call to be more godly, live God's way, but it's just so broad and so big that we actually don't even know where to start. And so James gets really practical for his readers. And as James does that for them, we must do that for ourselves as we hear God speak tonight. Is your religion pure and faultless, acceptable and pleasing to God? As James gives these practical examples of what it's going to look like, it includes a warning both for them and for us. And it's a sobering warning, isn't it? That we can be so self-deceived by creating a version of Christianity that is, that is essentially godless as we define and dictate our obedience to suit our own desires. It's a sobering warning, but it's actually one that Jesus himself gave. And I think it's probably behind James's teaching here. Uh, in Matthew 7, this is what Jesus says, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And how do we know if that's us according to Jesus? Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Wouldn't it be miserable to stand before Jesus who has returned in glory and hear those words, Away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you to find out that your religion was worthless. And so if James knew you completely, and if he was writing this letter to you, what would he say? But this is not just a word from James. This is God's word. God who searches our hearts and knows us completely. Are there areas in your life where you're listening to God but not doing it? I imagine for most of us here tonight, uh, we actually know exactly what James would say. Whether it's how we're relating to our parents, our housemates or our spouse, our use of money, the way we're using our time, what we're watching, our unwillingness to serve others, our anger, our pride or drunkenness. Maybe like James's readers, it's your slander, your gossip, your treatment of the vulnerable and the needy, or the way you compromise your faith to fit in with the world and everyone else around you. If God's Spirit has convicted you through his word tonight in James, then repent. Confess your failure, whether it's failure to listen, failure to accept or obey. Stop arguing with God. Humbly accept his word and turn to him. The God who sent his son into the world to save you from your sin and bring you to himself. Enjoy the sure promise of his forgiveness. Listen to his word. Do what it says. For that alone is pure and faultless religion pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that so often we have listened and argued, listened and rejected what you've called us to do, or even just failed to listen at all. So we pray tonight, please have mercy to forgive us our sins. And more than that, we pray, please change our perspective that we would see listening to your word and doing what it says as freedom, the blessed life. Please strengthen us by your spirit to change where we need to so that we would have Christ-like character that brings you glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.